guest today is Nate Oman from William and Mary. And uh, people who teach and write about contracts don't need any introduction to Nate. And, and the same is true for people who work in a number of other fields, legal history and law and religion, among others. And uh, we're excited, though, because we get to talk to him about sovereign debt. And um, I'll let Nate say more about how he came to develop an interest in sovereign debt. But uh, my sense of the field is that a lot of the core people in it have a background either practicing or in some other respect, really thinking deeply about sovereign debt transactions and restructurings. They're kind of the sort of the native sovereign debt people. But there are others, and, and I'm one of them, who come at it from a somewhat different background and who found some aspect of the sovereign debt markets or some set of questions that really captured their interest. And so Nate has his own reasons for visiting the dark side, and uh, we can maybe talk about them in a bit. But we're especially eager today to talk to him about how contract law intersects with one of the really interesting disputes going on today in the world of sovereign debt, which is the litigation going on right now in English courts between Ukraine and Russia over a $3 billion loan made by Russia. So Nate, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you. No, this is uh, delightful. Being on this podcast is a uh, dream come true. So I can I can check this off of my bucket list. A dream or nightmare you, that can remain unspoken, but uh, it's a dream anyway, a good dream for us. And um, let me just set the stage really quickly, if I can, for the, I think Me Too's mom knows the background, but mine doesn't. So that's half our listenership that needs a little bit of background about the loan in 2013 that the Russian government made really to prop up Viktor Yanukovych, who, of course, was ousted uh, the year following that. And and this this loan has always been a really strange hybrid. So it's in all meaningful functional ways a bilateral loan between sovereign states. So normally you'd have an agreement directly between the states and it'd be presumably governed by international law and enforced through political and diplomatic means. And then if it gets restructured, there are direct negotiations and often it's done under the auspices of the Paris Club and, and organizations like that. But in form, this loan doesn't look anything like that. It's structured as a tradable euro bond. It's governed by English law. It's enforceable in English courts. And throughout, Russia has kind of arbitraged that hybrid status, sort of treating the debt as an official debt when it's proved convenient to do it, and treating the debt as a commercial debt when that has proved convenient. And that hybrid nature of the loan has been a challenge from the outset. And so now our challenge, I think, is to figure out how traditional principles of contract law should be applied to this really weird situation. The loan predates Russia's recent invasion, but the backdrop are threats by the Russian government, the annexation of Crimea, and all of those things that make it an international dispute. And yet it has found its way into the English courts. And so, Nate, can you, that's sort of my kind of 10,000 foot overview, but we couldn't really think of anyone better to help us think about the implications of this weird hybrid status. So can I ask you just to give us a sense of what your reaction is to when you look at this case and what is it about the case that draws your interest? Um, so uh, I think the, for me, the interest of the case is is a lot of what is interesting about sovereign debt, right? Which is that these are contracts, and so we can think about them in terms of just all of the other, you know, uh, doctrinal and theoretical tools that we use for thinking about contracts, and then you inject into them all of the sort of uh, international uh, politics that is involved in, and it just makes for a really interesting set of issues. So in this case, right, Russia, uh, after uh, uh, Yanukovych was ousted, uh, and the Ukrainian government stopped payment on the bonds. Uh, Russia sues uh, Ukraine in um, London for breach of contract. 
And Ukraine uh, raises a number of defenses uh, that, as often is the case in litigation, right, sort of get honed over time. And what they end up arguing at the UK Supreme Court is not quite what they first pleaded down at um, the high court when they were first sued. Uh, but they raise a number of defenses, right? So they argue that uh, these bonds uh, were illegally issued. That is that the issuance didn't comply with uh, Ukrainian uh, law. And so the finance ministers that signed the contract with Russia didn't have the authority to do so. Uh, and then they raised the argument that um, Ukraine shouldn't be bound by the bonds because of duress, uh, that they uh, Ukraine entered into the agreement with Russia because Russia made a number of threats against the Ukraine, uh, against Ukraine. And there, the, those threats sort of fall into two, two buckets that are being alleged by uh, the Ukrainian um, lawyers. So the first is that they were threatened with various kinds of economic sanctions and economic pressure uh, that was put on the Ukrainian government to sign the bonds, uh, to sign the agreement. And then the second is that um, there were threats that were made against the uh, sovereignty of Ukraine, that uh, the borders would be readjusted and that there would be um, uh, military uh, intervention uh, in the Ukraine, and that Russia would support uh, militarily uh, Ukrainian separatists in the eastern part of the country uh, if this um, contract wasn't signed. So it's just an ordinary, in that sense, it's just like an ordinary duress claim, except that it's being played out on this uh, international stage. So Nate, uh, first, uh, welcome to our podcast. We are so thrilled that you have entered the world of sovereign debt. And I have to say, this past weekend, I was talking to somebody, one of our three listeners, who said, you know, uh, you had a podcast ages ago about damages. Uh, this, this was someone who had been a partner at a major law firm for many years and practiced in the area. Uh, and she said, you had this podcast about damages. I think you're completely wrong. The bond market could not work if that's how you think about damages. And I understand the antiquated rules of uh, damages law uh, might give you the answer you have, but you guys have your academic heads stuck up your butt. And so I was able to say to her, you know, our friend Nate, has thought a lot more about this and we will have a damages podcast with him one of these days and he will clarify our thinking. So that's just to make a pitch that you come back to our podcast in the future. But, but for now, uh, to stay on this fascinating uh, Russia-Ukraine case, I want us to get to what are perceived out there as the major issues of capacity, authority, and duress. Uh, but before we get to that, and to, in particular, the duress claim, when this uh, dispute first arose, and Mark and I were talking about it, my initial thought from a contract perspective, and maybe this was incorrect, but uh, I'll blame our dear friend Bob Scott as well, although this is probably not correct, but I, I was talking to Bob about it, and Bob used the analogy of uh, somebody uh, borrowing money and promising to repay it based on uh, the returns from their factory. And then the, the lender of the money comes and burns down your factory. And he said, you know, under traditional contract law, like that's a situation where both from logic and from law, you wouldn't have to repay the debt if the other person comes and basically destroys your ability to repay. Now, Russia lends the money and then takes a big chunk of Ukraine away, which Ukraine needs to repay the debt. And Mark and I had discussed this, and I remember suggesting to some of the lawyers who were working on this initially that, well, why don't you think about this in these terms? And I don't know what happened to it, but I want to ask you about that basic conception, even before you get to something like duress, that at least at that point, I thought was a loser of an argument. Yeah. So the this argument, right, that um... Ukraine should be relieved of their obligations because Russian intervention has made it 
uh, impossible or very difficult uh, for them to comply so that Russia sort of induced the breach. So that argument was made in the high court, and it was actually considered by the Court of Appeals, the Intermediate Appellate Court in the UK, uh, and they rejected the argument. And then that argument was not raised again on appeal uh, up to the UK Supreme Court. And I confess, I don't know enough about um, English procedure to know if it could have been appealed or not, but the argument sort of fell away um, on the, the, the notion that Russia is interfering with their ability to perform. Um, I will say that if you, if, you, if you conceptualize that argument sort of doctrinally, which um, doctrinal bucket do I stick that argument in? And under American law, I think the sort of most natural place to stick that bucket would be under the covenant of good faith and fair dealing, right? That uh, if I am uh, trying to uh, actively destroy the ability of the other party uh, to perform to somehow induce breach or something like that, that, that violates the duty of good faith uh, and fair dealing. And I understand the the uh, appellate court in the UK that their hesitancy to jump on that bandwagon, right? Which is just that if what we're talking about are just um, debt contracts that are attached to bonds and the bonds are going to be freely alienated um, and um, are going to are negotiable and are going to trade back and forth in securities markets, that you don't want those bonds to be encumbered by a lot of uh, implied covenants of good faith. And so uh, just because these were um, debt securities, uh, I think that's part of why the appellate court was um, really uncomfortable with going there with that argument. And in some ways, I, I like the duress argument better because in some ways it's a lot cleaner. You don't have to have recourse to like implied terms or uh, uh, you know figuring out the judicial contours of uh, good faith. You just say that there wasn't a proper contract that was formed uh, because of the improper threats that were made by the Russian government. Well, so this is a good entry point to, to duress because like me too, my initial reaction uh, was you're going to you're going to press duress like that's one of your key arguments that's crazy there's no chance and you know this is why people don't pay me thousands of dollars an hour to represent them i guess but um let's talk a bit about duress because there's so much that's interesting there from my i confess maybe too superficial reading of the supreme court opinion but there are these interesting questions about what types of conduct count as sort of the improper threat that we need for duress, and then questions about Ukraine's continued payments even after the contract was formed. So can you just kind of give us an intro to what the status is of the duress claim now, which parts of it, which parts of the the defense the Supreme Court accepted and, and which part they rejected? And then maybe we can poke at some of those as we go. Okay, so uh, the as it as the argument ended up being framed before the UK Supreme Court, uh, Ukraine was making basically two kinds of duress arguments. First, they were claiming that the military threats against Ukraine, the threats to invade um, uh, and to uh, you know lop off bits and pieces of of uh, Ukrainian territory, that that should be understood as a threat. Um, and should be analogized to uh, a threat to person or, or property, okay? So the core case of duress in contract law would be if I, if I make a threat to your person, right? So sign this uh, loan agreement or I'll break your legs. Um, and at common law, that was always, there was always a good duress claim if um, uh, there was a threat uh, against my person. And uh, then gradually over time, what happens is the, the duress arguments open up, partially because the common law uh, relaxes some of its uh, requirements, uh, and also because the equity courts also start giving uh, relief for duress in certain kinds of cases. So then I start getting duress if, if you attack my property, right, or try to take my property. So uh, sign this contract, or I won't give you back your horse, or I'll burn your house down, or something like that. So uh, it's fairly well established. you got a pretty good claim for duress if I can show that there's a threat to person uh, or uh, the strain of property. Uh, the more difficult cases are what under American law we call um, economic duress, 
right? Where it, rather than threatening your person or threatening to take your property, I'm threatening to interfere with your economic affairs in some ways uh, that harms you and that you, that threat induces you to enter into the contract. So the doctrine of economic duress has been acknowledged by both American courts and British courts. But I think it's safe to say that British courts are less enthusiastic or less friendly to this uh, claim than American uh, courts are. And there have been some recent decisions in the UK um, that suggest that the sort of notion of economic duress is sort of sliding back into just nor um, uh, doctrines of um, undue influence or unconscionability. Uh, and so th there, it's it's not um, it's not a great argument uh, in English court. It's not a great argument in American court economic duress, but it's even a worse argument in English court, I think. Um, and there are also also some distinctions in. Uh, English doctrine that don't exist in American doctrine as to the kinds of causation that you have to show based on the different kinds of duress that you're alleging. Uh, so basically, there's a much stricter causation requirement that has to be met if you're bringing a case uh, involving economic uh, duress. So the Ukrainian argument was that the various kinds of economic sanctions that were threatened by the Russian government were economic uh, duress. And that's rejected by uh, the UK Supreme Court, essentially because the court says that it's not illegitimate for one country to threaten another country with economic sanctions uh, because the country that's making the threat is pursuing uh, some geopolitical agenda or something like that. They point out like the UK government does this all the time. Uh, and so we're just not, we're just going to say that that's not an improper um, threat. And so therefore there's no economic duress claim. So what is left is the, 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 um, uh, threat to person claim based on the threat of military action against Ukraine. And that's going to go back down to the high court if, if the litigation continues, and there'll be a trial on that question. And I assume there, part of this has to do with the fact that we don't want, or the, the Supreme Court doesn't want to start analyzing the motivations of sovereign states, I have to think, right? I mean, in the as I think of economic duress cases, one of the key key factors in under U.S. law, at least, is whether the economic threats were made in good faith or with a lack of good faith by the threatening party. And I suppose it would be awkward to say the least. It wouldn't quite raise active state type concerns, but it would be awkward to start asking questions like that in the context of economic threats made by foreign governments. Is that part of the opinion or is it just sort of categorically this stuff, historically governments do it a lot and so it can't possibly form the basis of a duress defense? So it's, it, the, as I read the UK Supreme Court's opinion, it's more of the latter than the former. And part of that is that I think it's because the doctrine of, of um, economic duress under English law is just less generous than it is in the United States. Um, and so um, uh, uh, there's ju there's just less for Ukraine to argue. I do, I think though that the, your broader point, like this has to be sitting in the background, right? Is that the UK Supreme Court does not want to get in the business of making judgments about what is a improper threat in the international context when we're talking about uh, um, uh, trade sanctions. And so uh, as I read the court's opinion, they just sort of say, like, per se, it's not illegitimate for one country to threaten another country with um, uh, trade sanctions. And because of the way the law of duress works, right, is the law of duress isn't really about, like, the voluntariness of consent. The law of duress is about improper threats and then the position that the improper threat puts the um, uh, putatively contracting party in. And so the threat has to be improper to sort of get the duress argument off the ground. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't want to, they just, they just didn't want to uh, go down the road of saying that trade sanctions can be an improper threat. So Nate, and, and this, this is for both you and for Mark, I, I confess that I didn't really, I, I didn't really like the 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 separation that the UK court was trying to make because, it, it, I, conceptually, I don't understand this difference between an economic duress threat and a 
threat to your person. I mean, it, it really should be the threat. Then it really should be, to my mind, about a lack of consent. And but this this goes to a broader point that the UK court Supreme Court seems to be making that I also found very unsatisfactory, which was, and correct me if I'm misreading it, because I I, I confess that much of their discussion just seemed so opaque and confusing. Plus, they took three years to do this opaque and confusing opinion, which also is annoying. Uh, but they seem to be saying, look, there are these two separate bodies of law. There's international law that we're going to say we're not going to touch. And there's all this international relations stuff where uh, only the uh, you know foreign relations arm of the UK government gets to decide. And then there's uh, traditional contract law stuff that we will decide. And so if it's in this foreign relations box, we won't touch it. But if you are being willing to decide contracts among countries, then how can you say, I'm not going to consider international law since these countries are creatures of international law. They are at no point ever creatures of domestic law. But the UK Supreme Court seems to think that, oh, we can like nice and neat, in a nice and neat fashion, separate out international law, which creates these entities, and domestic law, and pretend that only domestic law applies. And then on top of that, there's an additional layer of, oh, the UK itself does all of this bad stuff to other countries and has been doing it for time immemorial since they were imperial power that did a lot of bad shit. But I, I don't understand. That, how is that a justification for bad behavior in the international context. So their stuff is illegal too. They've done a bunch of that. I don't know if Mark, if you want to uh, take on international law. I don't particularly know, but I did. I, so this comes up in two contexts though, right? It comes up in the, the context of what authority the, the, the government of Ukraine has when it borrows, but also in the, the context of what rules are going to determine wrongfulness of the threat. And I guess, I mean, the, maybe I'm just restating Me Too's question, but it's it just strikes me as a little weird to say, we're going to decide as a matter of English law. And maybe, I, maybe just you can tell me I'm just misunderstanding the opinion, but we're going to decide as a matter of English law, whether Russia's threatened use of force and later, because we have to decide whether Ukraine ratified the loan by paying it even after it was made, whether Russia's actual use of force in, uh, in Crimea, if nowhere else, um, constituted a violation, of, an, an improper action under English law. That just, it seems a very artificial way to go about the analysis. Or am well, I, I'm well, done. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I didn't, <laughs> Question I didn't mean to, to trip over the end of your sentence there. Um, I, so uh, if I was going to defend the UK Supreme Court, um, and particularly this discussion about uh, public international law, and for example, like did the threats that were that Russia made to invade Ukraine violate um, uh, international law? So if I'm just looking at this uh, as a duress case under domestic law, and I'm trying to figure out like is the, the is the threat improper? Uh, one one very good reason that I might have for saying that a threat is improper is that you threaten to do something that violates criminal law or that it is a legal violation, like it's a tort. Uh, and so traditionally in the duress context, uh, if I wanted to prove that a threat was improper, uh, if I could prove that what you were threatening to do violated criminal law or was a tort, uh, then that would be a, 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 a powerful reason uh, for the court to conclude that the threat was improper. So one way in which I think Ukraine wanted to argue this um, was to say, well, we know that the threat that the Russian government was making against Ukraine was improper because the threat violated international law. It violated public international law and use Kogan's and um, all of that fancy public international law stuff. 
And so, and so therefore, the threat is improper because it is illegal, uh, which is a, is a reasonable duress kind of argument one can make doctrinally. And I think what the UK Supreme Court wanted to avoid doing was having to say, like, we are going to make a specific judgment that the Russian actions violated public international law. But one could, of course, make an illegitimate threat uh, in which the the threatened conduct was not tortious or illegal, but was still deemed to be illegitimate for purposes of duress law. And that's what the, the UK Supreme Court was doing here. Now, there's a certain unreality about that, right? Because the UK Supreme Court is looking at exactly the same conduct um, if it was to be making a judgment that this violated international law versus making... Um, a judgment that, you know, this is just an improper threat under uh, domestic English law. Um, it, it's looking at exactly the same, uh, exactly the same facts. So it in effect is it's adjudicating the same sort of geopolitical events. Uh, but it gets to say that it's not actually judging this question of whether or not Russia has violated, um, has violated public international law. I mean, as to why uh, you know, why this is a question of domestic English law, I think the easiest answer there is it's a question of domestic English law because Russia said it was a question of domestic English law when they purported to sign this contract, that they've agreed that the law of England is going to govern this transaction or, um, and, or laws of England and Wales are going to govern this transaction. And so um, the English courts are saying, well, okay, you've invited us to adjudicate this and we'll adjudicate it. I don't I don't know if that responds to your concerns, but that's sort of my reading of what the UK Supreme Court is doing here and why it is that it's trying to be very coy about um, whether or not Russia has violated um, public international law, because it, it doesn't want to let the it doesn't want to put the duress claim in the it's improper because it's illegal category, as opposed to it's improper because we've just decided that this kind of conduct is improper. And the analogies the court looks to, uh, the cases, the domestic law cases it's citing are actually cases about threats to third parties, right? So I want Mark to sign a contract with me and I say, you need to sign this contract or I'll break your leg or I'll break Nidu's legs. Um, and so the idea would be, I think, is something like, it's not that Russia was threatening the territorial integrity of Ukraine, but that there were concrete Ukrainian citizens in the eastern part of Ukraine that would, would be threatened by Russia's action. And, um, and that is what sort of um, coerced the Ukrainian government into signing the, the contract, or potentially. I mean, all of this procedurally, right, we're just having an argument about whether or not there's going to be a trial. So maybe they couldn't prove any of this stuff at trial. Uh, I find this just this this is the reason why people sometimes find law so annoying because it's just smoke and mirrors bullshit. Like the 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 real claim is the same as you pointed out, Nate. Under whichever rubric you look at it, but the UK court is to have this elaborate edifice to say we're not doing this, but we're doing this, and this is pure, and we're not touching international law, even though of course they are looking at all of these facts. And the reality of their own behavior, where they delayed the decision for so long uh, because they are waiting to see facts on the ground develop. And then they're making this decision with a whole lot of hindsight it is that that, that separation I, I, I just find uh, so annoying when when courts do it but nobody listens to me about that uh, uh but this relates to in in, in 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 um in defense of your intuition right that the distinction between the economic duress and the the duress to persons like it's just all one transaction of duressedness um the the concurring justice uh one of the uh there was a concurrence in the uk supreme court uh, that took exactly that position uh, so you've got at least one English judge on your side, at least part of the way. <laughs> Yay. So I, I, I want to turn now, if you don't mind, to uh, the headline story, at least in terms of uh, what the the big UK firms uh, took out of this. And that, if I remember correctly, the Allen and Overy memo that they sent out to all their clients 
is that countries have unlimited capacity and for them this was a big a big payoff from the case because now you can't really have challenges to the capacity of a country like Ukraine even though Ukraine might have internal rules that say we're not allowed to borrow more than a certain amount uh, in foreign investors can lend to Ukraine in violation of those very very basic rules and in the UK uh, you can't challenge it now again the 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 decision seems to say for capacity because it's a matter of international law and countries we're just delegating it to the foreign ministry of the UK and even if investors know or should have known that this was a loan they shouldn't have made, we're gonna say it's okay for this matter of capacity. So to my mind, this is again saying, uh, is again invoking something about international relations while purporting to say, we're not getting into international law because we're just gonna delegate it to the foreign ministry. now. I don't know whether the UK Supreme Court thinks that this is going to bring uh, more sovereigns to do their issuances in the UK as opposed to the US if we think that US law would approach it differently, which I think there's a pretty good argument uh, to that. But I'm wondering what uh, you guys think about this, this supposedly big move on the capacity front. And I'll also confess, I didn't really even know what the hell capacity was before this case. So one of you... Go ahead, Mark. No, 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 please. <laughs> I do think this is a big this is a big issue, right? Because these there are a bunch of cases coming down the pike that raise these issues of, you know, we borrowed in our excess of our debt limit, we didn't get the right legislative approval and so forth. And I guess I like me to, while I understand, I mean, we all understand capacity as teachers of contracts, but I do find that concept a little harder to operationalize. When we're talking not just about a fictitious entity, but about a sovereign state. So, did anything strike you about this part of the the court's opinion? So, um, I, I will say. Uh, so, there's a sort of cynical part of me, right? Which is, I wonder, is I if, like this. We brought out the cynical part. This is come to the dark side with us. <laughs> So I do wonder, right, so when the UK Supreme Court comes down and says, yeah, we're going to let you have a trial on duress uh, it, based on like all of these geopolitical international threats on this loan contract, uh, at some level, that kind of sounds crazy, right? In the sense that like, uh, if I'm an investor, if I'm an underwriter, I don't go to the city of London because I think that, you know, um, British courts are going to be looking through the formalities of a transaction to get at substantive justice or something like that. I go to the city of London because I expect predictable formalistic commercial law, right? And uh, so one way of sort of thinking about the duress case is that, is that the UK Supreme Court is sort of um, going outside of its comfort zone by giving Ukraine uh, a, a, at least a possible duress defense. And so maybe the capacity uh, part of it is them sort of saying to capital markets, we're going to take away with one hand, but give you with the other hand, right? Um, and it seems to me is that if I'm thinking about what kinds of decisions by the UK Supreme Court are going to throw into, um, are going to create uncertainty about um, the validity of sovereign debt contracts, the duress claim here uh, is, and you can correct me because maybe I'm, I'm being naive about bilateral sovereign debt, but the duress claim here seems a little bit weird. Like, I don't think there's a lot of uh, countries that are saying, borrow from us or we will invade. Um, but I do think there probably are a lot of countries that ex-post want to say, oh, we shouldn't be bound by this contract because, you know, our domestic law uh, says that the foreign, the finance ministry didn't have the authority or power to enter into these contracts. And so, um, I, I wonder if part of what's happening there is it, the cynical part of me is just like we're trying to lay to rest concerns that capital markets might have that the UK Supreme Court has gone off the deep end and suddenly are in front of like the California Supreme Court or something. 
<laughs> I think. I mean, my. I think that intuition has to be right, uh, given the the duress. I mean, what's unique is not even necessarily the facts, although they're they are unique. But the fact that a loan of this nature would wind up before domestic courts in the first place. So. Um, an argument like the duress one that's being made would never be heard on that ground alone. This is such a unique scenario. But the capacity argument does come up all the time. And I guess it's not unusual. It's sort of a standard conflicts issue, right? Someone can lack capacity in one jurisdiction, but have it in another. And then depending on how the the conflict of laws analysis works out, they either have capacity or they don't. And uh, it seems to me that you're right that the the incentives here for the Supreme Court have to be to say that we're not going to show a lot of tolerance for these capacity arguments. But they do show. I, I have two more things I, I want to make sure we cover. And I, I can I just say one one thing about the capacity please. argument, um, yeah. and that is that um, there are actually two issues uh, here that um, I. It, it's easy to run together and it may be all right to run them together, but maybe not, right? And there, that is, there's a question about capacity and then there's a question about authority, right? So the capacity argument just goes to the question of, are there any limitations on a state's contractual capacity to enter into a, con uh, into a contract? But then there's a separate question of, well, the person who was negotiating this contract on behalf of Ukraine was the finance ministry. And then we got to the question of, well, does the finance ministry have the authority, right? So the, the state could have capacity under the international law analysis that the UK Supreme Court does, but the finance ministry might not have authority. Um, and the argument um, that the UK Supreme Court makes as to why it was that there was authority here is seems to be some kind of a, an apparent authority argument that that is that the the Ukrainian government was holding the finance minister out as having um, the authority to enter into this transaction. And so therefore, it doesn't matter whether or not he had actual authority to do so um, or not. And so I could imagine it'd be a weird set of facts. So I can imagine a situation in which you might argue, well, the state has the capacity to enter into the contract. But in this case, the there was no actual authority because the only representation the finance minister made as to their authority to enter into the contract is just, well, domestic law says that I have the authority to enter into this contract. And that's the only representation I'm making. And then domestic law is somehow like something that investors can see. And so whether or not they are reasonably relying on it to generate apparent authority in, in the hands of the agent is something that you could argue. I don't know if that's the way the law would go, but I'm just saying doctrinally that door, it seems to me, is left open by the UK Supreme Court's decision. Well, so that comment is perfect because it, it it is the comment that would have been responsive to my first question, which is like I wanted to ask about the these authority issues too, because frankly, in this context, my head kind of explodes a little bit in the sense that it isn't so the, as the case was litigated, the sort of debt limit is treated as a question of capacity, whereas some other limits are treated as a question of authority. And, you know, as you point out there, we can still analyze whether the officials who uh, incurred the loan on behalf of the government had actual or apparent authority. But, you know, if uh, a loan exceeds the debt limit, it seems to me equally possible to characterize that as a limit on the authority of the state's agents. And so then I I get really confused about whether there's a whether the holding on capacity is as significant as these law firms are making it seem. And I gather from your comment that there's still potentially a lot of room here for uh, for people to challenge the enforceability of loans, if only under the guise of authority arguments. Yeah, I, I confess I had exactly the same reaction as I was reading their discussion of Ukraine um, domestic law. And I like why some things got in the in the capacity um, bucket and some things got in the authority bucket was sort of mysterious to me. It seems to me, though, is that the the uh, um, doctrinal takeaway from the case is just that states have unlimited capacity to enter into contracts. So I can't, I cannot create like a constitutional or other domestic law limitation on a state's ability to enter into 
uh, a contract as a matter uh, under English law. But uh, it seems to me that the question of authority is still open. Although here there's a weird thing, right, in that the um, the court has some discussion of ordinary authority, and here, like, I, I'm not sure I'm understanding English law correctly, but I think ordinary authority under English law is what Americans would call inherent authority, um, and which is just the idea that um, if I am the guy who occupies this office, I'm the manager or I'm the finance minister, and ordinarily the finance ministers have the authority to do this kind of stuff, then I inherently have the authority to do this kind of stuff, even if I don't have the actual authority to do it. And even if no specific representations about my authority, other than the fact that I'm the finance minister were made. And if, if that's the ultimate doctrinal basis, right, that, that finance ministers just sort of have this inherent authority to bind the, the government to loan contracts, then all the rest of it, like the apparent, whether or not there's apparent authority or actual authority or anything like that, seems to me that it just sort of all goes out the window. Uh, unless the state was to say something like, our finance minister is entering into the contract. And just to be clear, our finance minister is not the kind of guy who ordinarily has authority to enter into contracts on our behalf. And I just can't imagine the state ever saying that. So I, I, I think, I, like, we don't know, I, I, I think would be the, the takeaway. I would not be as confident as those, as those law firm memos are, but they're smarter, better paid lawyers than I am. <laughs> They're definitely not better lawyers than, <laughs> than you are, Nate. You are literally the best person on what I would think is the, the, the really fundamental questions about contract law. And your knowledge is, is so deep and broad. But I want to, we're unfortunately getting to the end of our time. And th there's one question that for me, uh, I wanted to get to regardless of, of time. So I'm going to throw it out there. And that has to do with a suggestion as I am reading the convoluted UK Supreme Court decision. Let me, let me try and insult them as, as, as many times as I can. I, 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 I tried to listen to the oral argument. God, so goddamn boring. Why can't they be it's a little bit, you know, shorter and more coherent. Okay, uh, side side note, but this has to do with unjust an unjust enrichment or restitution type claim that Russia might be able to bring, even if it loses on the duress claim. Now, I don't, I can't, I don't know whether the UK court was saying this sort of tongue in cheek because they know that. Russia would not want to dispute on this because then Ukraine would be able to say, well, how could you be unjustly enriched when you, you know, invaded half our country and took all our stuff and killed all our people? Or whether or not this is a real claim that you could bring, because as I I, I don't understand restitution very well. Uh, I try to avoid teaching restitution because it almost seems sort of out of the bounds of contract damages, uh, but kind of in there. But if you talk about restitution, are you getting outside the box of contracts and then everything is fair game? So I, I am firmly in the restitution is not contract camp. Um, I think that there are basically three fundamental kinds of civil liability. There's tort liability, which is liability for our wrongs that are committed in some way. Uh, there's contractual liability, which is the failure to keep a legally binding a commitment. And then there's restitution or unjust enrichment. Uh, and I just, I think it's something that's not contract and it's not tort. It's just its own thing. Uh, it's just its own kind of civil liability that for like weird idiosyncratic reasons in the United States, like it's not in our curriculum and our lawyers don't think about that. And we shove it into like a one week or maybe one day uh, in our contracts class. But I actually think it's just its whole universe of civil liability. Um, so if, if Russia has an unjust enrichment claim against Ukraine, I don't think that's a, that's about the contract. I don't think that they would be trying to enforce their contractual obligations. It, it would it would be something simpler than that, which is just that, well, at the end of this mess, right? So we we coerced uh, Ukraine into signing this agreement, uh, and therefore Ukraine isn't bound by that promise that they made to us. 
But it's still the case that Ukraine is sitting there with $3 billion that we gave them. And they shouldn't be able to keep the $3 billion that we gave them. They need to give it back. Um, so that would be the, the basic thrust of the claim. So I don't think it's a contractual claim. I do think it's really interesting because if we do take it seriously as a doctrinal matter, um, and I, I don't know how seriously we should take that and whether or not any of this will ever happen or Russia will just drop the suit. Um, there would be various kinds of defenses that Ukraine could raise to the unjust enrichment claim that they might not be able to raise in the coercion claim. So they might, for example, be able to raise um, the question of some of the, the activity that Russia has done since they repudiated the bond, including the invasion, uh, under some sort of an unclean hands argument, or as a sort of counterclaim for damages, which could be set off against an unjust enrichment claim, but maybe not against the contractual claim because there's a no set off clause in the contract. So I do think there's, if, if, we, if we think that it's real, I think it's doctrinally really interesting. Uh, and um, I just don't know what's gonna, what's gonna happen as a result of it. I want it to be real because I want legal doctrine to be a thing. Uh, and, um, and so my, my intuition, is, my um, instinct is just to take the UK Supreme Court at its, at its word and to say, well, yeah, now looks like we've got at least dicta in a case suggesting that one country can have an unjust enrichment claim against another country as a matter of domestic law um, and then um, uh, go from there um, and, and figure out, you know, what the contours of that claim would be. But the, the court doesn't give us any guidance on that question. So you, I can, I can think of the kinds of defenses one would raise as a matter of just ordinary restitution law, but who knows if those would apply in this weird quasi-international context. And I'm glad you mentioned the no set-off clause in the contract, since that in some ways is a, a small point, but also a, I think a fundamental one, that the, the contract is sort of designed in a way to prevent Ukraine from using its many, many potential claims against the Russian state to reduce its obligations under the bond. But if restitution is really, a, um, I think the way the clause is written in the contract, it um, uh, if you're not asserting a contract claim, or if Russia doesn't have a contract claim that it's asserting against Ukraine, then the no set-off clause would, uh, would not be triggered, which is, I don't know, it's another example of how the weird hybrid status of this loan has raised all of these questions that um, uh, maybe maybe we'll see if they'll get re they'll get decided below. But I but I doubt it. This is I, I'm assuming we're not going to see a ton of sovereign debt obligations structured this way in the future. But um, but this one has raised some some interesting questions. It's also going to be interesting to see if Russia continues to prosecute the suit. Right. Mm -hmm. Or if they like uh, if, if at this point, what if they'll just sort of, um, you know, issue more hushy, uh, huffy press releases saying, you know, the English courts are irredeemably biased against Russians. And so we're abandoning our suit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Will you imagine that the next stages and, and their sort of discovery rights are different and lesser in English courts than they are in American courts, although I don't know much more about it than that. But you can kind of see the opportunities that are now opened up to Ukraine in pressing this defense. I imagine, you know, it's technically it's the trustee bringing these claims, but I imagine there will be requests for information from Russia and that information will not be forthcoming. And that itself will give Ukraine leverage in, in presenting the defense if, uh, if the case goes forward. So maybe to skip all of that, the, the Russian state really does bow out. So one question that I would have for uh, you sovereign debt gurus is uh, an argument that's been made, I, th I think, by the Ukrainian government or certainly by sort of pundits that are asso associated with the Ukrainian government is that it's important for Ukraine to be able to get an adjudication that the uh, initial contract with Russia uh, was is voidable so that they can um, argue that they're, they are not in default on that loan and have not repudiated the loan 
and that that could be important for like the lending into arrears policy, whatever that is, uh, the scope of that is at the IMF uh, or for other restructuring um, uh, negotiations that they don't want to have this, um, we're in default and we've repudiated claim hanging over them. And that they maybe they would wanna try and push forward in the UK court, courts to get an adjudication on that question if there's some procedural way for them to do that uh, over Russian objections. And I just don't know how seriously any of that is, or if the IMF is going to say, like, we're a, we're an international institution that's dominated by large Western um, donors or or, or um, funders, uh, and uh, uh, we're going to help Ukraine because we think it's bad that Russia invaded, and it doesn't matter that they repudiated this loan. <laughs> I think a version of uh, the second half of what you said, Nate, is what we already know uh, is happening. I understand the argument that the Ukrainians are making. It's a clever argument. Uh, if you didn't know how the international financial system works or has been working in the context of Ukraine, I, for the life of me, I cannot imagine that the IMF or the markets are going to treat Ukraine's default situation vis-a-vis -vis Russia, and Ukraine is in default vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, has been for a long time, as a, a traditional default where everybody else pulls their triggers on their uh, cross-default clauses and things like that. They, they just have not used this. And uh, I I mean, I can just imagine how embarrassing it would be if you were a Ukrainian holder and you showed up in court and tried to say that uh, Ukraine's default uh, on the Russian debt is the reason that you are in court asking for the cross-default clause to be triggered. As a pragmatic matter, nobody has had uh, the willingness to do that. Nobody will uh, do that. I am willing to bet, and the IMF will not complain about these arrears. But it's a good argument for Ukraine to make that it needs this to be clean because of all those reasons, but I, I don't think it's a real argument. It's the kind of argument that litigators make uh, shamelessly, even though they know as a pragmatic matter uh, that's not what's going to happen. But I do not think that the IMF at any stage will say we're just supported by a bunch of Western donors and we don't like Russia, so this is the way it's going to be. They're going to pretend well, that they're neutral on all of those things, but uh, maybe Mark has a different view. But Nate, thank you so very much. This has been one of the most enjoyable podcasts we have had you you you're you just have such an incredible wealth of knowledge and i i envy your students who get to uh learn from somebody so incredible so thank you so much i don't know if mark wants uh the last word i rarely let him have it but thank you nate here here that's my last word well thanks for having me